I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Last week's podcast was inspired by a suggestion from a Drive Nation listener. Uh, And this week's podcast is as well, or rather suggestions from a handful of Drive Nation listeners. Um, We often get people sending in suggestions for topics for podcasts, um, and often they're really good ideas. They're just maybe not an hour's worth of conversation. So what we're going to do is bundle a bunch of those suggestions into this one episode. Um, Now, Andrew, you've not seen any of these. I'm putting you... Completely on the spot, but I bet I, I suspect you're game for it anyway. I've never felt. I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to think we do an awful lot of preparation for these podcasts at the best of times. But I've I've never in my life felt less prepared for one of these. Um, I have literally, literally no idea what you're going to ask me. So uh, okay. my answers will all be rubbish um, and they'll all be wrong. And I can't apologise in advance, but um, they will at least be, um, you know, whatever comes out of my, my mouth at the time. You'll have to think quickly. It's Friday afternoon as we're recording this. Is that the best time? Is your brain firing at this point of the week? Um, so what I'm usually thinking of doing on a Friday afternoon is uh, going to the pub at six o'clock. But unfortunately, because I live uh, on the border with Wales and all my decent pubs are in Wales, um, my, my pub's now shut at six o'clock and they can't sell alcohol before six o'clock anyway. So I won't be doing that. So actually, I'm hopefully with any luck slightly less distracted than I usually <laughs> am when we're recording these things. So um, I'll still be rubbish, but I'll give it a go. All right. Well, we'll see what comes out. Um, now, actually, before we get started... Um, I just want to address a couple of things. So we're, we are recording this on a Friday afternoon. And by the time this goes out on Monday evening, and we'll give it a big push on Tuesday, um, we will know how, A, George Russell got on in the Mercedes at the Sakir GP. Um, and we will also know if Elfin Evans is Britain's third ever world rally champion, which is quite an extraordinary thing, actually. Um, so... It's no good me even saying good luck to both of them because this isn't going to go out until after the fact. But I'll just say here and now that I hope the two of them um, make the most of these amazing opportunities they've absolutely. got and they fully deserve them. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
Good. Okay. All right. So let's get on with the first topic of conversation. We've got a bunch of them to get through. And this, uh, this one comes from Tim Barraclough's. Um, and he watched uh, Chris Harris's video on the 992 GT3, uh, the prototype. Uh, lots of you will have seen it when yeah. Andreas Preuninger showed off a little bit of the car from underneath that cover. Um, but there's, Tim picked up on a comment from Preuninger. Um, he was talking about the 9971 GT3, which he described as all the sports car you'll ever need. Uh, and Tim wants to know if we think that's a fair call or not. I think, well, okay, so the operative word, maybe the operative word here is need. He didn't say it's all the sports car you could ever want, did he? Um, uh, I mean, you know, it's a great car. It's a really, really great car. Um, I mean, I can remember when I first drove it, um, just thinking it was such a step on from... So this was the first of the 997 series of GT3s, the first of all, uh, first GT3 um which came, itself came before the rs and the gen 1 version of that so the, the the last thing prior to that would have been um the gen 2 996 gt3 rs um so yeah i mean big big step um probably the first of the cars which really sort of set the template for the gt3s as we know them today and a really really good car but for me the Gen 2 version of the 997, particularly the GT3 RS, which we've talked about on this podcast lots before, um, uh, is, if you like, all the sports car you could ever want. So maybe that's what he was going to go on to say, but never did. Um, but yeah, no, great car, but um, not quite the greatest, I would say. Yeah, of that dynasty. Okay, and um, but what do you think? If it was a an, your only car, so an everyday car... Would you actually get more enjoyment out of a 997 Carrera GTS? Do you know, I, th- I thought about that. Um, I think a 997 Carrera GTS. Um, I, I, in fact, when I went to I, the, the launch was somewhere in America, and I can remember I went out there and I drove the car, and I can remember tweeting because Twitter did exist even back then um, that this was all the car that you'd ever need. But the funny thing, I, I was talking about the GTS, not the GT3. Um, and obviously, uh, the GTS is not an Andy Preuninger car, um, but it was so good. It was such a great car. Um, it would be a better day, day to daily driver than a GT3 because you know it will obviously be softer and it's got rear seats and you know blah blah blah. Um, so, uh, would it be? Yeah, it would. It would be a better. It would be a better everyday car than the GT3. Um, but I think what the GT3 adds to that on a decent road on a decent road while at the same time still being an absolutely eminently usable everyday gt3 car i mean for me the gt3 is is better even than that but if somebody said to me on terribly sorry you can only have the gts i'd I'd not be be feeling too hard done by yeah okay fair enough right let's let's move on we've got plenty to to work through so we're gonna have to clip along a little bit the next one is from alex verner and i picked this one out andrew because it's it sounds like it's right up your street um And we, we, we did mention this or briefly address this topic in one of our, you know, how to assess a car podcasts. Um, and it's a, it's a good point. Uh, so Alex has got a Mercedes C63 estate that he loves and he used to have a Mercedes GLE. He says he's very happy with the C63. However, 
when he puts his family and all of their bits and pieces in the car, the extra weight, he says, really has an impact on the car's ride in particular and handling and performance. Um, he says he used to own a Range Rover that really came into its own with a handful of people, <clears throat> excuse me, a handful of people on board. So let, let's just discuss this point for a little bit. How does a car's ride and handling change with extra load on board and which cars suffer and which cars um, actually improve with a little extra weight? What comes to mind? Oh, well, I mean, you know, go and drive any pickup truck, um, for instance, anything that is designed to carry a load uh, and it will not be designed to ride at its best unladen. Um, actually, you know, those pickup trucks um, unladen, they can be actually quite difficult to drive because particularly on wet roads because their weight's all down the wrong end and this, that and the other. And they tend to have pretty primitive back axles. Um, I, I, I have, it is fair to say, uh, on, on one particular occasion, been in, in quite a bit of strife because I failed to pay particular attention to the, how, wet, how wet it was and how unladen the pickup truck I was driving with <laughs> at the time. Um, and I, 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 I've probably had to work as hard as I've ever worked in a car um, for there not to be an absolutely calamitous accident. Um, and, and I got away with it. But anyway, so, um, yeah, I mean, basically, to me, it's all about... Um, yeah, load carrying isn't it so you know i'm not actually to be honest with you i'm not that surprised because a car like a gle it's a workhorse isn't it it's a car that is designed um to be full of you know children and luggage and stuff and go on holidays and that sort of thing um and you know i can absolutely see um how that's right that car's right would either not deteriorate or could even be um improved by the load i mean and, and you know i've got a you know, I've got my old Series 3 Land Rover. It's a great case in point. It rides massively better if I've got, you know, a, 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 you know, the, the back of the car's full of logs or people or whatever I decide to stick in there. Because if it wasn't like that, um, the moment you laid, you, you, you put you know, a ton of weight in the back, uh, the car would become undrivable. Um, it would just sink on its suspension, hit its bump, bump, bump stops, and you literally wouldn't be able to go anywhere in it. So it's a lot. And, and something like a C63, you know, that's a car that's designed to handle more than ride, and it will be set up um, to do that. And, you know, and, and if you do add hundreds of kilos to that, then obviously, you know, weight has never done the handling of any car any particular good. Um, and it just, it just won't be set up to, to, to be at its best when fully laden. So I think, I think it is, um, as simple as that. I mean, so there, there have been exceptions. I can remember if you go back 30 years to 1990 and the launch of the original Lexus, the LS400, you know, when we first drove that, we simply couldn't believe how well it rode. I mean, you know, forget Rolls-Royce, forget Mercedes. This was the finest riding car any of us had driven until you put four people in it. Um, and then if you went down a road with any kind of sort of long wave undulation in it, um, you'd be banging your head on the, on the roof lining and then, you know, it would be wallowing around in the dips and the primary ride, so its ability to maintain its ride height, um just disappeared the moment you put a load in it so you know um you i mean obviously with air suspension in particular um uh, where you have you know this self-leveling effect so you don't get this great change in attitude um it's so much easier to manage the mass of the car and to maintain decent ride quality than if you're doing it with a uh, a passive springing medium uh where you know the shock absorbers just um you know compress the way that they're going to um 
but um, yeah, it all it's, it, it's basically it's all down to what the car's de- originally designed to do and the amount of load that you stick in it. Yeah, okay. So load carriers improve with load, and performance cars uh, get less good. With, that is quite straightforward, actually, isn't it? Um, as, as a very broad rule of thumb, yes. Yeah. Okay. I performance is a, another topic and inevitably a lighter car with more people on board is going to lose a greater proportion of its performance i remember driving um an alpine not mine actually it's before i got mine um and a mate of mine jumped in he might listen to this hello ben uh and i think back then he he's a big lad i think he was probably 100 kilos back then he would like me to point out that he's below 90 now so I must get that in there. But the, the, <laughs> how how the Alpine lost performance when he jumped in, it was actually very, very funny. It could barely get out of its own way in a straight line. Um, and he must have just thought, well, this thing's dog slow. I can't understand why you're buying one. Okay. Well, I mean, if I could take that to an extreme, my... My 2CV, this isn't just a way of me to talk about 2CVs again, um, but my 1958 425cc um, 2CV, when it had its original 12-horsepower, 12, 12 yes, absolutely. Well, no, before it had the four-stud head, when it had its three-stud head in it uh, with only 12-horsepower, um, its support performance was materially affected by fuel level. It was much slower with a full tank than with an empty one. <laughs> okay, so they weigh, what, 500 kilos or something? Yeah, about that. How big is the tank? Is it 40 litres? No, not even that. 30, I would think. 30. Okay, so you can add, yeah, a sort of 6% additional weight to the car. Yeah, okay, I can understand that you'd feel that. Yeah, when you've got 12 horsepower to play with. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and also, you know, you, the moment you put another person in, oh my, I mean, the hill that I have to get up um, to get home uh, with the 12 horsepower engine um, it would with a with a running jump with me in it on my own and a light fuel load. It would get up in second. The moment you put anybody else in it, even my lightest daughter, it was first gear. And I suspect that if you ever tried to do it four up, the only way it would get up the hill would be in reverse because <laughs> the reverse reverse happens to be the lowest cog in the box. I mean, there, uh, there is. I mean, I know someone. This is absolutely genuine. Who had one of these things and lived at the top of a much steeper hill than the one I live at the top of. And the only way he'd get his two CV home was in reverse. The only way he could get up his drive was backwards. I hope he had neighbours because they must have just found it hilarious <laughs> watching him turn around at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Uh, okay, right. Next topic. Matt Wardle. Thank you, Matt Wardle, for getting in touch. He wants to know about sleepers, cue cars. Um, great topic. So he he suggests the Lancia Thema eight thirty two is a great cue car. Um, so it depends what you mean by great, doesn't it? Okay, okay, he, okay. It qualifies as a cue car. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yes, it, it's a cue car. Um, it's it's it, it, in in that it look. If you buy a cue car, you mean a car that's much faster than it looks, which I think is what we do mean, isn't it? A car which looks very understated, then absolutely an 832 Thema, Tamer, whatever we're calling it, um, absolutely qualifies. But that in itself might make it a good Q car. Doesn't make, a good, doesn't make it a good car. Okay, Fair. okay, point taken. Um, so w- let's cover off first what the, the appeal of a, a good sleeper car is. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's straightforward, isn't it? It's, it's subtle. No one's looking at you. Um, no one expects a particular a kind of level of performance from that car, and there's fun to be had in surprising people. And also, 
just going under the radar, not having people point their phone cameras at you, not having idiots on the motorway try and race you. Um, I totally understand the appeal. Yeah, I just, I, I just love the subtlety of it. I just love the fact that only you and anybody else inside, only people who get it, understand it. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to think of something like a... I'm just trying to think of a real... Oh, an E28 M5, yeah? That, to me, is a really, really great cue card because... It's so understated, isn't it? It's got the wheels and it's got, what's it got? I can't remember the number. It's got, it's got body coloured mirrors, that sort of thing. And the, but you took the badges off it. Um, and it's got, it's got, a, it's got a front spoiler and a little bit of a lift valve, but it's very, very discreet. Um, and, you know, you drive around in one, in one of those and, you know, only you know you've got 286 horsepower under the bonnet and everybody else thinks that they, 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 this is just some crummy old five series. And I, and, and I absolutely love that. I, mean, I, I am a huge fan of the Q car genre as long as the car itself is good and that's my particular problem with an 832 having been old enough to test them when they were new they were just I mean they just didn't work did they have the transverse V8 they did have a transverse V8 they had a Ferrari transverse V8 um, and uh, it was basically the the 8 was the number of cylinders um, and the 32 was the number of valves so it was a 3 litre Ferrari engine uh, which was basically the QV engine out of the 308 um, GTB However, here comes Anorex <laughs> Corner, because it was going in the saloon car. Um, and we have seen examples of this go the other way. Mercedes has done it with the AMG Black Series. Uh, Ford did it with the Mustang, and they turned a cross-plane V8 into a flat-plane create, mm. a V8. I'm not sure I've known another example of a car designed with a flat-plane V8 later in life adopt a cross-plane V8 other than the 832, because in all Ferraris, as we know, all V8 Ferrari engines have flat plane V8 uh, flat, flat plane crankshafts, apart from the one that went in the 832, which was a cross plane crank. <laughs> well, the good thing is, if you're not right about that, someone will be in touch, won't they? I am right about that. Otherwise, <laughs> I wrote some absolute rubbish 30 years ago. <laughs> okay, let's hope you are right. Um, I, I had a good Q car experience recently, a good sleeper experience in the the BMW M550 iX drive, which is now available in the UK for the first time yes. after the, the facelift. From and all good retailers. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's a good car, a really good car. It looks quite discreet. I, I'd like it a bit subtle. I'd take the badges off. I think I could do without red brake calipers. Um, but, you know, because so many 520Ds are specced up with the M Sport body kit, it just looks like any one of those, apart from a couple of little details. And yet it has 500 horsepower uh, and four-wheel drive, and it just goes like stink. So, yeah, so, 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 so here's the question. I mean, I, I ask you only because I happen to have been knocking about um, for the last few days in a, in a um, you know, the facelifted M5 um, competition. Um, which would you rather have? I mean, I really like the M5 comp, actually. Um, I, I, I don't think it's one of the great M cars. Um, but I mean, I can remind, I, I, I can remember very well driving an M8 uh, and thinking, "What's this actually giving you that an M5 doesn't give you?" And thinking, "Well, nothing really." Um, but I'm beginning to think um, that maybe that M550 or 5i, if it's got 500 horsepower, is in fact the one to have anyway, because presumably it's it's a stack cheaper and it looks more discreet. Yeah, well, and, I've it'll, and, and it'll ride a lot better because the M5 Comp doesn't ride particularly well. Yeah, the M550i does ride, and I think that probably seals it. So it is, it's cheaper on paper, it's like 30 grand. I don't know what that looks like once you 
um, get into dealer discounts and finance packages, all that sort of stuff. But presumably it's going to cost a fair bit less to to buy and keep. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a great car. It is, I suspect it is the one I would have. Um, sadly, it's you know I, I don't actually have to make that decision because I'm not going to buy one. So let's move on. Ross Kenyon has got... Oh, hang on, hang on. Uh, Aren't you going to ask, you, ask me what my favourite Q cars are? Uh, okay, go on. Oh, here we go. Have, have, okay, you, have so, you just got a list sort of stored well, in your mind? Only, only between my ears, and it's not a very long list, okay? Um, I knew I knew you not prepping for this podcast would not be a problem. <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I think a shout-out for the... Do you, do you remember, the problem is that you're going to be too bloody young for all of these. Do you remember the W8 Passat? Yes, of course. Okay, well, there you go. I mean, so that was a Fantastic. Volkswagen Passat with basically yeah. half a Veyron engine in it. Um, okay, I exaggerate for effect that, that, slightly, that was, but... That was from the, yeah, now sadly very distant, um, bonkers VW group era, wasn't it? When yes. they were just up to all sorts of madness. Are, and yes. now VW aren't even competing in motorsport anymore. Oh, dang. A W8 Passat. Um, and <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, there were all sorts of things wrong with it. Um, and it was set up to ride like a barge. But it, I mean, that was quite a motor in it. Okay, so the next one. I know, know we've got to move on, so I'm going to be quick. Okay, so the next one. Rover 75 V8. Now, you, you oh, think yes. Volkswagen did some bonkers yeah, things. Yeah. It's nothing. So the Rover 75, we'll all remember, was, was, <laughs> this was a front-wheel drive car, um, which was designed to be powered by a uh, 2.5-litre, uh, 190 horsepower um, V6 engine um, up front. And then they decided, so what we're going to do is make it a rear-wheel drive car powered by a Ford V8. Uh, and, and the re-engineering, basically, they had to re-engineer the entire car um, to do this. And apart from you know, things like, I think it didn't have four exhaust pipes, four square, four, four square pipes out the back, and tiny, very discreet little V8 badges, you just wouldn't know. It just looked like any other Rover 75. I mean, there was a, sl- there was a slightly more flash version, um, MGZT version, wasn't there? Um, which I think is the one that you know you you, you you sort of hear about a bit today. But there was a Rover version, and it literally it was just a completely butter wouldn't melt Rover seventy five with a two hundred sixty horsepower Mustang V eight in it, um, which couldn't help but go sideways everywhere it went. Isn't it hilarious that they ever greenlit that project? Completely re-engineering a car to be rear wheel drive. It's just. It's bonkers. How did that ever get signed off? Well, I mean, it, 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 it was in all the madness at the end, wasn't it? Um, do you think? And, do you think the suits were just too busy trying to? Yeah, and save I think, the bloody I think company? Was, there's just a bunch of people thought, you know, we've got this budget. If we don't spend it now, um, yeah. when, you know, when they're going to say, what's the craziest thing we can do? I know. We'll make a front wheel drive car, rear wheel drive car. I mean, <laughs> it was ridiculous. Um, so that, that that's my second favourite Q car. Okay, hang on. So uh, you've given us number three. What was not? You, you'll have to remind me. Uh, so well, uh, I've forgotten too. Uh, oh no! There was the there was the passat, wasn't there? Oh, the passat. Um, and then the, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. So, so, so you now want the favourite, don't you? Yes. Let's no, have you it. really will be too young to remember this. Oh, uh, okay. I well, give hang you. On. How how should I react? Well, okay. I, I hope you've heard of it. Right. Okay. We'll see. It's a Volkswagen Golf. Ah. Okay. Yeah. You're going to say. Edition. No. What What was it called? Limited. Limited. You see, I knew it was something. Limited. I knew it was a single word. Okay. Oh, so no, this addition, was... Okay. Th- 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 so for those of you who haven't come across this car, and, and you could be forgiven because it was never sold in the UK. And I think they only made about three of them. No, no, I don't know how many there made, but it was handfuls. Um, 
back in the day, and this is back in, so this car I think was around about 1990. Uh, so you're in the sort of thick of, or getting towards the end of Golf 2, um, so Mark II Golf. Um, they had a supercharged engine and they had a 16-valve engine, um, but they never supercharged the 16-valve engine. You can either get eight valves and a supercharger or the 16 valves, apart from for the Golf Limited, which had a supercharged 16-valve engine. And they were so pleased with this. <laughs> what they decided to do was stick it in a Golf, yeah, but they didn't stick it in... They basically decided how unlike a hot hatch they could make it look. So they gave it the five-door body shell, not the three-door body shell. And you know that all those Golf GTIs, they always had those quad headlights. Well, they did away with those. Uh, so it only had the two headlights. Um, and this, this, you know, a normal Golf GTI at the time would have had 110 horsepower, I think. 112. This had 215. And it had four-wheel drive. Um, and the best way you could tell what it was is, you know, you have that little red band that goes around the grill of all Golf GTIs. It was blue. That was it. <laughs> that's, um, that's hilarious. That's a car with a sense of humour, isn't it? Absolutely nuts. Because that wasn't just a car that was trying to not look like what it was. It was a car that was actually trying to look like even less than the sort of standard thing. And it was, oh, what a thing. So I bet it must great- have flown that thing. That's hilarious. Well, I mean, in the, in, oh, now I think you get into it and you think, well, this is, better, this is a bit of fun. But back in the day, I can remember the only reason I, I, it kind of lodged in my mind is Volkswagen got one over and we all had a whiz around in it. And um, I think it did sort of six and a half to 60. Plenty hell. With, with a bit of four-wheel drive action in there. So, I mean, yeah. it's a rapid. But, I mean, you know, I, I would, I'm not sure it would keep, it probably would just about keep up with a modern Golf GTI. But, you know, wouldn't see which way a Golf R went, but being back in the day, it was something no. else. Anyway, well, um, imagine if VW came out now with a, a version of the Golf that had almost double the power of the GTI. Yeah, okay, five hundred okay. horsepower. Exactly, five hundred. Yes, <laughs> that would be something, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be pretty extraordinary. Um, okay, Q cars. Thank you, Matt Wardle. That was fun. Uh, Ross Kenyon, we're on to yours now. Um, a good topic delay, again. A good topic again, but maybe not quite within our wheelhouse because you and I probably aren't the best informed commentators when it comes to car design. Oh, my uh, goodness. Yeah, so we'll we'll do our best. I'm hopeless um, at this. Okay. Well, you'll have we a point used to, of view before anyway. we, we used to have a thing at Autocar called the Designer's Dinner. Okay? And uh, it, it happened... Uh, we, we'd have the annual sort of Autocar Awards or something. Um and then what would happen after that is all the designers would go along and we'd all go out for dinner. We'd go out to dinner somewhere in London. And I'd sit around the table and my editor was a bloke um, called Michael Harvey, who now uh, runs the Road Rat magazine, which I'm sure lots of you have seen and admired. Uh, and Michael understands and gets car design, I mean, massively. And they'd all just sit there and they would just suddenly start speaking in a language I didn't understand. It was like, honestly, it was, it was like they all just started speaking in Swahili. Um, because they would just be, and, 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 and for me, the only time it was ever fun is the one thing about, which is great about car designers is they are spectacularly indiscreet and incredibly rude about other, about other people's car design. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, so, so it was fun from that kind of view, from that point of view. But if anybody is expecting anything particularly illuminating or whatever particular aspect of car design it is that you're about to throw across my desk, um, I would manage your expectations because, um, yeah, I don't really know much about it, but do carry on. Okay, what makes design timeless? Oh, 
<laughs> and and can we suggest some cars that uh, do exhibit timeless design and maybe some that we think are going to age badly? I have a theory. Um, oh, good. I'll I have think, a rest. I, yeah, Theorise away. I mean, I'd, I just pulled this out of my head. I don't, you know, I've, I don't know the first thing about design, but I suspect that timeless design is something to do with proportions that are inherently right for that particular type of vehicle. And that is science as much as it is art. Um, I think it's probably simplicity and an element of originality as well. Um, but I think, I think probably correct proportions and simplicity must be at the heart of it, don't you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree entirely. The distinction I would choose to make is people talk about timeless design and timeless design and beautiful design are not the same thing. Um, so a 19... I'm just trying to think of an example. Okay, a 1955 300SL Gullwing Mercedes is a beautiful car, but it looks like a car that was designed in 1955. It does. Yeah, it does. Um, Whereas we can all think of um, cars whose design is genuinely timely. I mean, you know, the, our old friend the 911 is probably as good an example as ever. I mean, okay, so having had, uh, having you very kindly bought me a little bit of time um, to think about this, I, I think it comes down to not appearing to try. I think the moment um, a car appears to be conspicuously designed or more to the point styled i think that is the moment that you are putting a sell-by date on it um because you know style as we know everything goes you know style is fashion and things come in and out of fashion and i think the re- reason that shapes like i don't know 911s and landros you know, they appear almost just to have happened they're not cars that are uh, that have things sort of their design to me is sort of what's the word they're not sort of basic shapes that are then accessorized with uh with with lots of other stuff with you know with body kits and kits and you know flicks and swoops and you know all this sort of stuff that we see in so many cars today i mean i could walk outside and you know i've got a few test cars lying around and you know and and, and they will all have things on them that you can look at and you and you think to yourself the only reason that looks like that is because that's what the designers want it to look like. There is absolutely no mechanical or aerodynamic reason. It is purely a choice of styling. And that makes it, to me, a transient thing. Um, so, yes, I think just clean, basic design is the only way you can also achieve timeless design. So, some examples then. I, I'm proposing uh, a modern Rolls-Royce I'm talking about the saloon cars, really, rather than the the SUV, uh, the Cullinan. So I I think something like a Ghost, because it's simple and it's it's elegant and it's not overwrought. I think that will ultimately prove to be a timeless design. So what do you think about mad-looking cars? You know, what do you think about I don't know, an Aventador, which I think is a really good-looking car? It looks incredibly striking when you clock one on the road, doesn't it? Yeah. But that's but, but does that strike at the difference that I was sort of I, I was I, I mean I used the Gullwing uh, as an analogy, but I could say the same about Amira though. If we talk about Lamborghinis, you know that Amira looks it, it is one of the most beautiful cars that's ever been produced. But it's beautiful in that very sort of voluptuous nineteen sixties kind of way, isn't it? Yeah, you can you can place it. You can place exactly. when exactly. it was when it was penned, can't you? Yeah, and I think that's probably true. That will be true of the Aventador as well. Um, Peugeot, Peugeot 205. 
I think that's timeless. I mean, I you know I don't have one anymore, but when I had one, um, I could look I could look at that, and to me, I mean, to me that is not a car that looks old at all. Um, in let alone thirty years old, no more. What is it? Thirty five? Nine eighty four? It came out, wasn't it? So thirty six years old. I mean, you know, thirty six years before that would have been in the 1940s i mean that's just ridiculous um and to me you know um and i, I and you know and, and to the extent that they are still using that design language for the for the 20 whatever they're up to 208 today you know if you look at a 205 from 1984 and you look at a 208 today you can see that one begat the other uh, and that to me is the true hallmark of timeless design um because they're still in their own way trying to you know dine out on it yeah, and I mean, in the case of the 205, again, correct proportions and simple. Um, if We might be oversimplifying it there. So if anyone listening to this really gets car design and wants to explain to us what it is that makes design timeless, please get in touch. Or just what car design is. What, yeah, what, what is car design? Because we really don't know. Um, okay, moving on to a question from, or a topic from Mark McTavish. Um, it, no, it really is just a quick question that we'll cover off quite quickly. Uh, but he makes a good point. Um, historic racing. And I think at some point we'll do an episode about historic racing. Maybe hang it off um, one of the Goodwood events. Well, let's, do it. Let's, do be... it. let's do it at the start of next season. Um, because, I mean, we're, we're all just going to be gagging for some kind of, you know, fun for our, in our motoring and, 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 and competition. So let's, so let's do that then. Uh, I, I, I would love to do, if people would bear with it, a podcast just about... Um, historic racing, the history of racing, um, and what's so great about it. Okay. Um, yeah, we will do that. But in the meantime... But in the meantime, Mark McTavish makes a good point. So we know historic racing is a rich man's game or yeah. a lucky journalist's game. Um, <laughs> yes. But the same thing, really, isn't it? You, you, you're very fortunate if you get to do it. Um, but could you actually have as much fun in a grid full of Mazda MX-5s, old MX-5s, maybe even on cross-ply tyres or just rubbish modern road bias tyres. Do you think you could achieve much of the same thing with a, a car like that for much. a fraction of the cost? Oh, yeah. I mean, you could have 80% of the fun for 8% of the cost. I don't doubt that at all. Um, and I think for almost all people, I mean, certainly if you were someone who was really into historic racing but couldn't, you know, like frankly like me, um, imagine being able to do it uh, off your own back. Now, I'm very lucky that sometimes I get to do it because of what I do for a living. But, um, you know, I, I, I certainly wouldn't not look at doing something like you describe in a, an, an MX-5 race or something like that because you think it's going to be a poor shadow of what it is that you're really after. It, it absolutely won't be. You know, particularly with a car like an MX-5, it's a very good example because in many ways they do... Um, behave quite like historic race cars you know they've got you know the engine up one end and the driven wheels back down the other and they have manual gearboxes and they're low and they're two seaters and they're open and you know and and so on and so forth and they slide they haven't got much grip they haven't got much power they slide around all over the place you know that's what historic cars do the only thing you can't get is that sense of occasion that you know and and it is it's not everything it's not even you know very much but it is something and you know even if you're not in a very expensive um historic race car uh for instance you know i've I've been blessed to spend years and years and years skidding around in not particularly expensive old alphas you know julias that sort of thing 
um, you know, Italian police cars from the Italian job. Um, and I don't know. There's something about them because they're whatever they are, you know, 55, 60 years old. Um, and they have this amazing character um and they are a bit rubbish but they're, they're just such fun to be in. and also it's obviously it's all it's also all the stuff you can see out your window it's all the other old sheds going around to you know the lotus cortinas and you know the teaser bmws and and, and and all that sort of stuff um and you know that all creates um it's a bit of theater i guess um and if you're lucky enough to be doing it at a beautiful old circuit somewhere, um, that does too. And, and, you know, the sort of the magical step back in time, which is what, you know, Goodwood in particular has always tried to, to create. You know, if you can get any of that um, through the car that you're driving and the car that you're seeing and the circuit that you're driving on, then that is, it is just another dimension. Um, but it is nevertheless purely additional to the enormous amounts of fun that you can have racing well, basically anything, uh, and certainly a car as well configured and you know and fun to drive as an MX-5. Yeah, cool. That's that's great. Yeah, you, I think you're right. Actually, it's a bit, particularly the Goodwood events. Um, the atmosphere uh, is is a chunk of it, isn't it? It's a, a sort of a reasonable chunk of why yeah, it's fun to be there. It, it is, but you don't have to go to you know, and you know, and it is you know, unless you're you know blessed with money or 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 an ability to publicize these things it is almost impossible to actually race at goodwood um just because they have so few events and such packed grids but you know what you can do is you can go and race at castle Coombe um or or any other one of you know or cadwell park or any of these wonderful old um circuits which still very much have the feel of a traditional old circuit and have much the same thing going for you so, you know, don't sit there thinking, oh, well, you know, there they are sitting about talking about racing at Goodwood. I mean, how could we possibly manage to do that? Um, you know, it, it's not just Goodwood. There are lots of places you can go where, where, where you can have that, you know, that, that, that step back in time feeling going for you. Alton, there you go, there's another. Mallory Park. Mallory Park. Thruxton. Um, yeah, loads yeah. of them all over the place. Are they still racing at Mallory Park? I guess they oh, are. That's a question. Because uh, I, I, I've only been there once, and it was a few years ago. But I, I turned up, and it just felt to me like a, almost a facsimile of Goodwood. It's got that very traditional feel to it, the way it's, the whole circuit is dressed and the surrounding, surrounding buildings and so on. It, it, it felt like a sort of step back in time 50 years or something. Yeah, it is. It, it, is, it, 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 is, it is a lovely old traditional circuit. And, and, and they length... I mean, I used to race on it when it was very, very short and you get dizzy going around it. Um, but they've lengthened it a bit now. And it's actually, it's quite a good challenging circuit. And turn one, it's called Gerrard's, isn't it? Um, it's one, that's one of the great corners, actually. Um, it just goes on forever. And there are about eight different lines through it. Um, and you can overtake people mid-corner through it. You have all sorts of fun. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, a grid full of old MX-5s on crap tyres around Mallory. And you've got be great. a good exactly. chunk that, of the that, good that, that would be great. And that would be such a cheap day out. Yeah. By the standards oh, of what, what, what mo- we, people traditionally expect motor racing to cost. Um, okay, next question comes from Konstantin Novatsky. Okay, and there's a clue there. Um, Konstantin wants to know about Russian cars being when they were sold in the UK. Um, and you, uh, during your 30 plus year career, you must have a bit of experience with some of these Moscovichs and Ladas. Do you, do you ever remember testing them? Ladas, yes. Now, I missed the Moscovich, I'm glad to say. Uh, I read a few reviews of them. Um, yeah, I mean. <sighs> Okay, so the only one of them um, I, I rated was 
what was the off-road Lada? Was it the Neva? Neva, I think, yeah. Yeah, that was quite cool, actually, because, I mean, that kind of played to its strength. It was very, very basic, but it was also very, very strong. Um, the fact, because it was just a basically, it was, you know, it was their answer to, well, it was a bit bigger than a Suzuki SJ410 or Jimny as it became, but it was that, it was very, it was very much that kind of car. It was very basic, very agricultural, very much intended for use on farms and on tracks and that sort of thing. So the fact that it had absolutely no creature comforts whatsoever was, was neither here nor there. Um, and that struck me as being a good, honest thing. Um, the other stuff, oh, did I drive some Fiat-based Russian stuff? I must have done. I've, there's nothing else that I could, that, that immediately leaps. I've, I mean, I've never driven, I'm afraid, a Zill or a Trebi or a Tatra. I'd like to drive a Tatra, actually. That'd be fun. Um, but I never have. Um, so, yeah, I'm afraid. So my, my knowledge of, of, of Russian cars, even those that very few that were around when I first started doing this, is uh, is, is is not as good as it could be. So um, apologies um, for not being able to answer that question. Well, hardly at all, let alone thoroughly. <laughs> well, there, there might be a couple of other questions related that you can answer. Do, do you have a sense of how much they cost relative to, say, European competition and who bought yeah. them and why they bought them? Were they just dirt cheap? Yeah, they were. They were absolutely dirt cheap. Um, yeah, I mean, they were cheaper than. I mean, well, certainly for the amount of metal that you got. Um, I mean, not that you know this was necessarily terribly high quality metal, which wouldn't <laughs> dissolve itself into a pile of iron filings within a couple of years. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that's why you bought them. Uh, they were actually pretty robust um, because they were. Um, usually based on somebody else's um, engineering, uh, like Fiat. Um, so, um, and they and they're pretty solidly put together, and a very there just wasn't very much to them. They were very basic, so there wasn't that much to go wrong with them. So, if you needed transport, and particularly if you know you needed to carry people, so you know basically for the same money that you might. Um, buy something very small and very pokey, you get something Russian which was quite a lot bigger and even more pokey. Um, so, 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 so that was, that, 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 that was the USP. Um, they didn't try at all to suggest that they were quiet or comfortable or had, you know, nice levels of equipment or anything. They were just basic beasts of burden. And, and you know, in, in a bang for your buck or a run for your ruble, yeah, not too bad. Good. Okay. Well, there's, there you go, Constantine. I hope some of that is helpful. Um, We'll try and squeeze in at least one more, maybe a couple more. There's one from John T.I., John Ty, maybe. Um, and you can tell he's a hopeless petrol head like the rest of us because he's just bought a house called Fairford. Um, and in his head, that immediately became Fair Ford. Um, and he wants us to talk about the fairest Fords of all. Um, so the, 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 best, <laughs> the best, The best. I don't know if he actually did say fast Fords. but So maybe that's a slightly different list. But... The best Fords there have been, and we can include fast Fords in there as well. Um, and I'm going to nominate actually the the Mark One Focus because that has to be a Ford highlight, doesn't it? Definitely, definitely. Um, but it was a product of the most extraordinary engineering vault fast I've ever known a car company make. Um, because it wasn't the first of those cars. The first of those cars, when, when did the Mark 1 Focus come out? 96, 97? Something like that? A little like bit that? later, a little bit later, I thought. Maybe, 98? 
But anyway, so. um, the car that started it was the Mondeo, which definitely came out in 93. Um, and before that, um, you know, some people listening to this will remember the utter, utter rubbish <laughs> that Ford was producing at the time, the Sierras and the Escorts and, and all that sort of stuff, uh, stuff which we just tore into. Um, and, yeah, and, and Ford had a bit of an epiphany. I, I'd love to actually find out um, who it was who banged the desk and said no more. We're just going to stop doing this now. You know, this slickly marketed mediocrity is, it is unworthy of our badge. It is unworthy of our heritage and we're just not going to do it anymore. I've got a good idea. Let's start making proper cars again. Um, and the Mondeo in 93, I mean, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a conversation for another time, but um, I may have said this on this podcast before, but okay. What I will tell you about it is I knew that car would be a great car long before I even sat in it because they launched it in the south of France in 1993. Um, and the first thing they did, usually what happens is the car manufacturer rings you up um, and says, come and drive our cars. Oh, and by the way, don't you dare think about turning up in any of its rivals because that's not what it's here for. And if you want to do that, you can do that when the car gets back to the UK and everybody else has had a fair crack at it. Ford didn't do that. They rang up and they said, come to the south of France and drive the new Mondeo and we'll send a truck round and we will transport all the rivals you want to the south of France so you can compare our car against theirs. Um, and I thought, well, they wouldn't be doing, they wouldn't do that if they were not as confident as confident can be. So that was the car that started it. And then the Mark 1S uh, uh, Focus came along and to me, that was the continuation car. That was a car that picked up the ball and, you know, and, and ran with it. And it, it was a fantastic car. Um, and it needed to be because it was replacing the Escort, which was desperate. But I'm not sure that when that came out, it was any great. Uh, I mean, both the Mondeo and the Focus took Ford in one leap from the bottom to the top of the class. Um, and I'm not sure any car manufacturer I can think of has ever done that with two consecutive products. Um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely um, a great, great Ford. Yeah, you make a really good point. Right, well, how did that turnaround happen? Who was responsible for it? It's a it? good story. Maybe someone's going to write a book one day, aren't they? Or, you know, some, yeah, there'll be a, a story will be written uh, about how that happened. Because, as you say, what a turnaround. It's um, a really good story. And if anybody listening to this wants to drop in the comments or send us something on instagram or get in contact with on social whatever uh who knows what lies behind it i mean i know that lots of people in the industry listen to this podcast now um i would love to tell that story i would love to sit down with whoever it was who banged that desk and just said uh i mean i'm not sure it was richard barry jones i'm not i don't know whether he was there then or not but somebody did uh, and somebody went must have gone and got board approval for this complete change of philosophy um, and I'd love to know what's behind it. Because even now, uh, a, a new Ford will come along and there's an expectation, isn't there, that it will handle sweetly. It will steer well, yeah. it will handle and ride. But it, um, but it does keep on delivering on that expectation. You, know, um, yeah. you know, I think a Focus ST is one of the best cars in that class. I think the Civic is probably now the... I wouldn't, I'm afraid, have a Golf GTI as... Um, as quite up at the top, I think it's between the Focus and the Honda. You know, the Fiesta ST is, in my view, absolutely still um, the best compact hot hatch. Um, if you absolutely have to go and get yourself a crossover SUV and you like driving, you simply have to go and get a Puma because it's, it, as a thing to drive, it's streets ahead of anything else I've driven. Um, they just keep on delivering, don't they? Um, and, and it's great because it's part of, you know, it's part of their brand ID and um, the day that stops will be a, 
will be a sad one. But let's can, can we just think of another couple maybe um, that aren't immediately obvious? Because I think you know it's no great surprise that you know that we that, that, that we've come up with a you know Focus ST and a Fiesta ST. I'm just trying to think back a bit. Um, GT40 that wasn't a bad Ford, was it? <laughs> what about uh, the GT? The, was it 0405 round? Uh, the 0405 GT. Yeah, so that's a that's a great call. That's a great call. I mean, what a fabulous car that was. I mean, yeah. Um, me when that came out, me and, a, and an extremely young Jethro Bovingdon um, took one of those up and down Highway One in convoy with a 360 Modena, um, and I wrote this story. Um, basically, where the Ford just kicks the ferrari into touch and it created such a stink at ferrari at the time because i think i i i think we might have said that we hired the ferrari i don't think we had actually i think it was just a ferrari that ford had, that, that ford had bought and had, you know and, and, and had driven and driven and driven as a sort of you know evaluation car um and ferrari weren't happy that this wasn't one of their cars and they hadn't supplied it and they couldn't vouch for it and this that and the other um, but it didn't, none of that detracted from the fact that the Ford GT was just a bloody wonderful piece of kit. Um, to me, a better car, a, a certainly a better road car than the current Ford GT, uh, a more enjoyable, I mean, nothing like as fast, but, um, for, to me, far more charming, you know, that wonderful, you know, well, obviously manual gearbox, supercharged 5.4 liter V8, um, yeah, and it, and, it, and it was just really well resolved. It, it, it handled beautifully. It rode well. It looked incredible. Um, very, very little not to like about that. Do, do any of the 80s fast Fords deserve mention here? Um, I, I don't know anything about them, really. I've, I've well, not yeah, driven Sierra, many or any. Well, the, the Sierra Cosworth. Um, yeah, so of the Sierra Cosworths... Um, there's obviously there was the original when was it uh 86 87 the, the so so the, the the biplane hatchback the mad looking one which you know which was the um homologation car which the RS500 came off the back of um and they were they were fun but they weren't very refined in the way they did things uh, they were very tricky in the wet um and yeah i mean they they were flawed cars the car to me the great underrated car was the sapphire the four-door saloon which came after that um before it got four-wheel drive and so it's basically just standard cosworth running gear although you know turbo techniques could easily tickle it up to 300 horsepower um and that was completely reliable and you know with the same power delivery and i used to love those I used to absolutely love those slightly mild. I mean, the moment you know, some people went and gave them 400 horsepower, the car became horrible then. Um, but w- with a little bit more power and that um, four door shell, slightly softer suspension, those early Sapphire Cosworths, I think were, were among the most underrated, frankly, of all fast Fords. Um, yeah, and no, I loved them. Good. There you go, John. Some fair Fords for you. And congrats on the new house. Um, okay, so we've got time for one more topic. And this one comes in from Dan Prosser, who wants oh, to know... Oh, 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 Dan Prosser <laughs> of Bristol. Um, I just want to know what you made of the Romain Grosjean crash at the Bahrain Grand Prix. Well, other than the obvious, the, you know, the yeah. immense, overwhelming sense of relief when he climbed yes. over that barrier. Um, I mean, what can I I, I, I... I don't want to sort of... 
you know, leap to judgment. Um, but there are, you know, I, I did write a bit about this on, on DN and, you know, I, and I compared it to Burger's crash at Imola in, I think it was 89, um, when from the moment the car caught fire to the fire being out took, I think, 22 seconds. And in that case, in Berger's case, that was absolutely essential because he was unconscious in the car and he couldn't have got out. And if they hadn't done that, uh, I don't think about um, what the consequences um, were. Um, clearly, um, you know, the medic and the driver who got there and waded into the flames to get him out, I mean, just complete heroes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but whether the car behaved the way that it should do... Um, the, the the thing that stands out to me is the barrier. I didn't know that barriers could do that. I didn't know that barriers could um, be split, frankly, the way that... And, and, and maybe it was just one of those unbelievably unlucky, you know, once-in-a-lifetime things where the particular angle, um, speed, attack of the car, it just, you know, it was just a, a confluence of lots and lots of un... Um, of, of, of bad of, of bad issues came together and allowed that car to pierce the barrier but there's just i just didn't think that could happen in 2020 i didn't and you know and then the moment the car has gone through the barrier then you know the only thing reason that he was you know putting out that amazing um you know happy enthusiastic thing that he messaged he put from from, from hospital bed you know that day was because of the halo yeah you know um case case closed isn't it well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the halo is, I, I was not a fan of the halo and I said some stuff about the halo and, 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 I, and I think all that stuff still stand. Um, you know, I still don't like the way that it looks. I still think that it puts a barrier between uh, the spectator and the driver. You know, I still think that drivers get into cars knowing the risks that they're taking. Uh, and while that is the case and while those risks are clear and disclosed, um, then they should be free to take those risks. But I cannot say in all conscience that, you know, I wish that the Halo wasn't in Formula One because I'm afraid if the Halo wasn't in Formula One, um, I'll say it, Romain Grosjean would be dead. Um, and, you know, and, and, and it is as stark as that. Um, you know, there are, there are only two previous occasions on which I've known cars go, go basically through a, the lower level of guardrail while the upper level of guardrail stayed intact. One was Francois Sever um, in 1973, the other was Helmut Koenig in 1974. Um, and, you know, neither of them obviously um, survived um, those impacts. And so it saved his life. And, you know, I just don't think that you can be, you know, too sniffy or, or, or proud about something that does that to not go back and revisit what you thought about these things in the past and say, well, you know, now that I've seen what it can do, um, I probably, you know, it's time to modify your view. Um, so sometimes we're made to believe that it's a weakness, aren't we? Um, adjusting your views as, as time goes on. But actually, it's a strength, isn't it? To, to admit that you've got something wrong and you've, you've been open enough to reassess. So Yeah, I mean, yeah. yes, I, well, yes, y- y- yes. I mean, I, I got it wrong in so far as... You know, I think I probably, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I probably did say that I wished that 
you know, that uh, Halos weren't in Formula One. And if I could have voted, I would have voted against them. Um, and so in that regard, you know, if, if you took that vote again now, I mean, I think only a, well, I mean, you know, I won't say it, but um, yeah, I mean, of course I'd vote in favour of it. So yes, in that regard, I got it absolutely wrong. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, I would still absolutely stand by the fact that they don't look very nice and they get in the way um, of that vital um, sense of contact between um you know, driver and spectator, but I think ultimately they are, you know, very necessary. So, mm. yeah, bring them on. It was shocking, wasn't it, to see a fireball in a modern racing accident. I just, I don't think I've ever seen one during my lifetime, not not the time I've been watching motorsport anyway. So to see a car go up in flames like that, it was unbelievable. It, 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 yeah, I mean, the last one I saw was, was Burgers. I mean, I'm sure there have been others in other formulae, um, but, you know, the last one I can remember... Just see if there's been one in sports car racing. If there has, I, you know, I mean, you see, don't you? You see the most unbelievable accidents, um, which people walk away from. And it never occurs to you that the car's going to go up. Although, I mean, there have been some in GT3 racing, haven't there? Wasn't there a Lamborghini that um, somebody got very badly burned in? But I mean, I can remember, um, and this is actually a, a, a conversation that, you know, that I've had quite a lot um particularly you know in in the historic racing community where frankly cars are much more likely to catch fire than in any others and in all the years and years of decades that i've been racing old cars i've never seen a car catch fire to the extent that when the hands device came along um and we started wearing them and getting used to them um you know i think we would all now agree um or certainly before last weekend we'd agree that if you had a choice of either wearing fireproof overalls or a hands device um you take the hands device um and you'd leave your fireproof overalls um you know back in your back in the bag um because fire has become such a a rare occurrence i think it almost doesn't even occur to you that it's that it's going to happen whereas back in the day in the 50s 60s and 70s um if you hit something hard it wasn't just you know a remote possibility that the car was going to go up it was a very strong possibility um and then so you you had to have all the all the gear back then but um no i mean i think yeah. th- thank right. thank goodness for all the work that lots of very clever people have done over several decades to improve safety in motorsport um but you know for the, the halo the the strength of the car itself, the barriers, the all sorts of different factors, the new suits that the FIA brought in this year that give more um, protection against fire or protection for longer. Thank goodness for all of those things. However, I do think there was an element of good fortune that um, in Grosjean, Grosjean's crash that there wasn't a, a strip of barrier right above the cockpit that might have impeded his exit because... I mean, it doesn't even bear thinking about if he'd been somehow trapped in that car. I think it's just a reminder that this drive for safety in motorsport cannot stop. I think, actually, though, it was a bit of a lucky escape last weekend. Yeah, and and also, you know, I think where he was, well, obviously very strong and very fit, but also undoubtedly lucky, is, you know, he decelerated at 53G. You just think about that for a second. You know, I don't think that roller coasters in the UK are allowed to go past four. <laughs> okay? Now, I might Goodness be wrong. Me. Maybe they go to six. But it's nothing. It's like one-tenth of what Grosjean went to. And the fact that he was um, able to... He was still conscious and able to get out of the car by himself. If, he'd been, if, he'd, if he was in Berger's condition and if he was 
you know, um, you know, not physically badly hurt, but had been knocked unconscious and were sitting there in the car. And so they literally had to wait until the fire was out. Um, I mean, who knows? Um, so, yeah, I think uh, lots and lots of things went wrong and lots and lots of things went right. Uh, but the only thing that matters is, you know, he's out and about. And, OK, by the time this goes out, um, he'll be planning to be at the next Grand Prix. Yeah. Lessons to be learned, hopefully, and progress will, I'm sure, um, come from it. Then thank goodness he's okay. Okay, we'll leave that one there. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. It really helps. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash drive nation. And we will be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. All the best. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 